0: Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast where behavior analysis and social justice collide.
1: Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us.
0: Follow us on Spotify, Apple or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful
1: Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast.
0: If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash humans to become a Patreon.
1: Welcome back, beautiful humans. It's Denisha. And it's Aaron. We are joined by Malika Pritchett. And Malika, before we get started, I would love for you to introduce yourselves to our um, listeners and let them know a little bit about you, your work, and anything else that you feel comfortable with telling them.
2: Sure, absolutely. Well, thank y'all for having me. One hundred percent. Very, very excited to to chat, especially with people that um, are interested in talking about social justice and activism and. Um, the uncomfortable things that arise from from being a, a human in this world, but then also being in the precarious position of being behavior analysts. That's a that's a, a noble thing, and that's a cool platform that y'all have set up. So it's an honor to be here. Um, my name is Malika Pritchett. I am a behavior analyst, and uh, I've spent all of my behavior analytic time at the university of north texas i really have had a rich and valuable journey along the way i fell into behavior analysis out of biology and once i fell in i couldn't couldn't untangle myself with how exciting science was on the science of human behavior side so i've been here ever since i do a few different things currently right now i am um probably in my seventh year, now that I think about it, in private practice. So I'm here in Austin, Texas, and my husband and I are both behavior analysts. We own a company called Positive Enlightenment, and it's a labor of love. We serve um, people in our community who traditionally would not get behavior services. So they are adults or um, young adults or, um, adolescents and all the way up until our oldest client, uh, before she passed was 99. So that's kind of our, our jam is, is serving populations that traditionally would not get services and it's hard work. It's hard work and it's labor and it is exhausting, but we love it. And that's, that's what we do. But other than that, um, I just finished my PhD right as COVID hit. I defended my dissertation. So I'm on the other side of an interesting part of, of my life and of my journey as a behavior analyst. And, um, that's where I am today. That's how I landed here. I think, I think that covers just about everything. I have four wonderful boys. They're great. Uh, two Frenchie bulldogs. That's, that's me.
0: Oh, I'm so jealous.
2: (laughs) You can have them anytime, Erin. Not the
0: kids, the dogs. The dogs. I got enough kids.
2: (laughs) All of them. I got enough kids. (laughs) Okay, all of them.
0: Yeah. Real fast. I've never told Denisha this, but just as your dissertation came out, um, Dr. Tyra Sellers, who I talk to routinely, um, sent me a link to yours or tagged me in it on Facebook or something like that. And was like, you have to read this. And it was your dissertation before, um, this came out as publication. So like, I've actually known about your work since like, right. Probably like right when you became, um, a, a, you know, got your, your degree. And, um, you know, so I'm just—I've been really excited about this. I attended the uncomfortable X webinar that you did. It was just um, absolutely phenomenal. So I'm really excited about, um, you know, some of the the knowledge you're about ready to. Shout out to Tyra for, for the for
2: the dissemination. Then, yeah,
0: good for. 100. <laughs> yeah, it was um, Dr. Alai who had posted, um, and then she had you know attacked me in that. So it was just—it was just really cool. Thank you. Yeah, Dr.
2: Eli. So I have a great story about Dr. Eli. Um, she she was my advisor for my thesis at UNT, and um, wonderful experience. Such a good person. If people haven't had the chance to just kind of, if they do get a chance at a conference to pull her to the side or something like that, she's always got this wonderful swarm of people around her. So it's hard to 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 capture her. But her light and her love and her belief in the science making the world a better place is unmatched. And so I got in my car every day from Austin, Texas to Denton, Texas to to do my PhD under Dr. Eli because I didn't want another advisor. I I couldn't imagine another person deciding whether or not I deserved a PhD. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I couldn't, I couldn't imagine my life a different way. So my My lovely husband and children packed me up each week and sent me up there to Denton. And it took me, it's supposed to take you from Austin to Denton four hours. I got there in a little bit less time, safely, obviously. But um, I drove up there every week and commuted from Austin to Denton four hours uh, each way, each week, with a family and kids, all because of Dr. Eli. So that kind of maybe gives a little bit more context to um, to, to how much we view this, this labor and how important this work is to us. This is not, this is, it's not to be taken lightly, I guess is the the thing I'm trying to say.
1: Yes. I love Dr. Alai. Um, Dr. (laughs) Alai sent me her, uh, CV and I was (laughs) like, my goodness, like (laughs) she has done so much for our field. So, um, so that's really cool that you got to study up under her and that she was your advisor. Um, this is one episode, like, I feel like I, I had Meek Mill's song running in my head, like, this is what I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for you to come on to the show and, you know, give our audience members this information. Um, when I read your your article, I was like, yes, like, when, when given the opportunity um, to do the special series on police brutality and systemic racism, um, obviously I was hoping for the folks that we don't hear from too often to to feel like this was a place for them to put their words um, in. The history books with us. And so when I got your paper, I was like, yes. And and you really pulled everything out from the root. You called out every single thing. And I was telling someone I was like, if I was anyone else too, like I, I might be serving as the guest editor, but even if I wasn't like I would have been like, what's up with this special series and like even the fact that you were unafraid to write everything in there and you know um it's beautiful and and we need more of that so I've been really excited about the show and I've just been happy to be connected with you ever since then so (laughs) Um, it's an honor you know
2: there's this um Dr. Eli and I have been paying attention to me more recently I'm sure Dr. Eli for longer um an an author by the last name of Roy I can't ever say her first name, Ar- Arudita Roy. I'll have to unbutcher that. But last name is Roy. And, and what she was talking about is she was talking about um, this, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic being a portal in particular and a portal in the sense of perhaps, and I say this with a heavy, a heavy heart, perhaps the suffering and the, the, state of the world right now is offering openings. And I'm wondering if, if the murder of George Floyd and the murder of Breonna Taylor and countless others, it just gets exhausting to recall these names. But um, those in particular, I wonder if that, in addition to this pandemic that we're dealing with, I wonder if these are portals. And I wonder if, if, if my dissertation would have been brought up and published. That was a concern about two years ago. Will this get published? Will this even get published? Will the community accept it? Uh, so that's, I'm sad for the suffering of the world, but also maybe it provides um, an outlet for us to have these types of discussions, this type of platform, and, and for um, for the article to get to more people than it maybe not would not have had the opportunity to had we not been in such a state of suffering
1: in the world? When Aaron and I first started, we talk about this a lot. um, We had a lot of those same thoughts, like the type of work that we were doing, the type of work that we wanted to do. Would it be accepted? We knew it wouldn't be accepted. I have a story that I tell a lot about when it was time for me to try to go back to get my PhD I was told by my old advisor that if he ever saw a paper that was about social justice and behavior analysis he wouldn't even pick it up so like you know that was the world I mean that was our field still just two years ago because that was in 2018 so those fears that you had you know we we had those conversations repeatedly it was very intense trying to start this labor of love for us we were, we were, um, not afraid, but we were so sure that we would get ousted from this field. Um, and so we had to be what Skinner called uncommitted to this organization, uncommitted to this culture, because to do this type of work, you are actually disrupting a lot of the status quo, um, a lot of what had been comfortable for a very long time. And so I just, I I look back on certain written works now and I'm just like, I feel like even though it feels extremely uncomfortable or it felt extremely uncomfortable just two years ago, a year ago, a few months ago to do this type of work, to be able to go back in the history, read the works of other behavioral revolutionaries. Like it feels like we're in the right place and that we're in good company. I just feel like your your work is called Social Justice is a Spirit and the Aim of Applied Science of Human Behavior. And that is essentially, to me too, what um, behavior analysis, behavior science is. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit about the word spirit? Um, because it's... <laughs> talked about in terms of spirituality, Skinner gave us something on that. Also, um, Dr. Mark Matiney, but it's not a word that we hear often in the field of human behavior. So can you explain that a little bit for our listeners?
2: Yeah. So so we were having conversations about um, Mont Wolf's 1978, the heart of behavior analysis as far as social validity is concerned. Um, and Dr. Lai and I have a tendency to to push hard enough for people to listen, but not too hard to where they're too pushed away. So so we stepped out on a couple limbs with this paper because we use the word spirit in the title, that's huge. And then we also talked about love in the discussion. Uh, And I've had a couple people reach out to me and saying, that's so brave. You're talking about love and spirit and this, that, and the other. And uh, I've been, I've been doing a lot of, I've been doing a lot of reading. That's an understatement, but I've been doing a lot of reading and I'm really, really interested in in what spirit means in particular, but I've been listening to a lot of uh, black women in particular talk about the fact that we potentially are in a spiritual void in in our world, and maybe the spiritual void is is what's causing a lot of suffering. So we're not necessarily talking about um, formalized religion or or any sort of religious necessarily institution, not the institution of, but this this thought process that that uh, love and soul and this that and the other which with science is very tricky to talk about, especially in the science of behavior analysis. So do we, do we attempt to define spirit? Absolutely not. That is way beyond the purview of this paper, but we do respect the word in particular, and we used it very purposefully. So if we're going to talk about social validity being the heart, then we're going to say that social justice is the spirit of what the word applied actually means. Um, Because, our tension was and our frustration was people were calling Dr. Eli, like, Hey, can you do this talk about, um, applied behavior analysis and in social justice. And they were talking about it. Like it was this auxiliary area, like it was like autism or challenging behaviors or functional analyses, um, or, or, um, I mean, on and on and on, you guys get where I'm going with this, but the basic, the basic premise was, the word applied in applied behavior analysis and social justice, we don't, we don't think these things need to be disentangled. They're one and the same. So that's where spirit came from. Um, but again, if you, if you kind of look at our discussion, we're speaking about spirit in a way that's going to push the field to an edge of a comfort zone because we are in a sense, alluding to spirituality and we're alluding to love and we're alluding to those those types of constructs that scientists typically want this like Stephen Jay Gould to like non-overlapping magisteria. They don't want anything with regard to spirituality or religion to infringe on the science. So we're, we're pushing that boundary
1: intentionally. So in your, um, in your paper, you talk about, um, colonial powers and how Mm -hmm. they show up. Can you, uh, Talk to us about what are what are those powers and how they how do they actually reveal themselves in research. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so one of the one of the conversations at, at the University of North Texas, we had a social justice lab, which was really cool. And what we got to do is we got to do interdisciplinary work with um, a couple departments, women's and gender studies and anthropology. So we've been having these collective conversations about racism, oppression, discrimination, all of the isms that, that our world, ableism, on and on and on. And one of the conversations that had been plaguing me was racism. And throughout this conversation, we started to talk about what racism was a, was a mechanism of. And when we talked about racism as a mechanism of, we were able to then step back a little bit and a bit and look at the context. Racism is a mechanism of larger systems of oppression, larger systems of oppression all over the world. But specifically, if, if we're going to focus on the United States, there's a there's a specific history behind um, what racism was used for. So uh, inextricable from that conversation about racism, you have to talk about colonialism. You have to talk about oppression. You have to talk about power structures and you have to talk about Eurocentricism. So, the conversation gets more complex. So one of the things that uh, scholars in sociology especially are talking about is they're talking about the fact that uh, let's, let's just assume that everybody agrees colonialism has, has died <laughs> and that colonialism is not continuing to happen. What these post-colonial theories are, these post-colonial theories are what are the what are the power structures that are left behind once countries have been colonialized? What are the what are the rituals? What are the habits? What are the the systems of reinforcers and punishers that were left by by colonizers? And then that's that's the world that we're living in right now. What determines what's good or right? What determines what is right or wrong? Where do these dichotomous ways of understanding the world land? And that's That's literally what marginalized persons are victims of in this country right now, is they're victims of these these dichotomous hierarchies about where people need to be. That was a long
0: winded answer. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, don't be sorry. (laughs) So when when we talk about those things, right. um, How does that show up in the context of research?
2: Good question. That's a really good question. So that shows up in the context of research in so many ways, in the context of research in the sense of what are the research questions we're asking? If we're going to use um, human subjects, human participants, who are we going to select to carry out this research? Once we figure out what's happening after the research project is complete, then we're bound to 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 answer the question of how did we benefit the research participant in the immediate? How did we benefit them on the outset of the research? And then the larger context: How did we benefit our human population because of this research? So how are we validating this research process? And. Um, Steve Fawcett in 1991 talked about colonial relationships. He wrote an article about um, community research and and how behavior analysts can engage in more participatory research in particular. And he specifically said that behavior analysts need to be careful of colonial relationships. And what he meant by that was that we should not be engaging in a research relationship just so that we could engage with the person take their behavior data, commodify it, and then turn it into something that we say, hey, look, Eureka, look what we found about human behavior, and none of that benefits the person, and we're over-selecting vulnerable people who can't escape research, who don't have the option. That's just um, where maybe maybe they are in their lives, the only option they have for behavior services, and so... That, that was really interesting to me for him to call those relationships colonial in particular and then he moved on in the paper <laughs> and so I I stuck on it I was like why is he saying colonial relationships and I just kept saying it over and over and over again and I think that obsession was the seed of, of, the, of the dissertation in particular
0: so interesting how it was just like a passing sentence almost and that has resulted mm-hmm. in in this <laughs> <laughs> um were you going to say something
1: um no you know what i think thinking about for your paper you were talking about obviously and then what you just brought up was the way in which we use research participants and it's almost like a hey you all and this is you know how i see it done sometimes (laughs) folks will have their answers for their community and will say, hey, we need to put this on, we need to put this in academia, so let's go ahead and use you and say, oh, guess what? We figured out the answers. Actually, the community figured out the answers, and you, you know, kind of took that and decided that you were going to put this on on paper and get the credit for it, and that's um, how we see a lot of times that our communities are being used as guinea pigs in that way. Um, So I think You know, just the the discussion about that, like, what is the community getting out of it, too, is is key um, when you start to talk about um, the the participatory part of it. Um, Yeah. So you also went through in your paper, which I think is so important uh, to go through, especially when we're talking about uh, the the walls of research um what's been done in the the past in terms of marginalized communities to essentially use um our communities you go through a few different um historical records Um, can you talk to those can you talk about those examples and where the power dynamic was extremely present um, and for lack of better terms like our community was used and also, uh, dehumanized in the process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
2: Our, our, our difficulty with, with writing this, with writing this paper in particular, this article was to what extent do we, do we acknowledge or do we highlight the suffering and the marginalization that's happened? And do we? to, to what extent do we select a couple vulnerable populations that have suffered uh, at the hands of biomedical and behavioral research? That was, that was difficult for us because so many communities have suffered at the hands of biomedical and behavioral research. And the difficulty with the behavior analytic community is – The behavior analytic community with regard to using um, or selecting human subjects for their research they don't have enough of the historical background that maybe our friends in nursing and and the medical field may have or sociology or, or public health. And so what is largely missing in behavior analysis is these narratives and what's largely uncomfortable is these narratives. So one of the most important narratives is the narrative of, of Henrietta Lacks and Henrietta Lacks's narrative is known very well in the, the medical community. And even the general public is very much aware of, of her story and, and her, her experience as a black woman walking into Johns Hopkins University in horrendous pain. She had already sat in her bathtub in her, in her house and felt her cervix and knew there was a mass and walked into the, the black ward of Johns Hopkins University Um, terrified, obviously, and, and seeking treatment and a person sitting in that hospital that is interested in collecting cells from all over the hospital, just to see what these cells would do because they were trying to advance medicine, right? This is the, this is the big name of the game, advancing medicine, advancing science. So her cells scraped from her cervix sent up to that lab, and then turns out that these cells do not die, that her cells are immortal. The first time anybody has ever seen human cells that never died and continue to multiply no matter what and continue to multiply right now and are probably Henrietta Lacks' cells are helping with the COVID-19 vaccines. Like, if you've had a vaccine, Henrietta Lacks' cells are, are I'm, I'm going to say with pretty certainty that they're part of that that. Process with regard to even figuring out that vaccine or, or keeping you healthy. So, so fascinating that the narrative of a black woman has saved so many people all over this world. So, we, we chose to tell her story very specifically. And then, um, the men in Tuskegee, Alabama, who were told that they were getting treatment for bad blood, uh, but they were just letting syphilis run rampant through their bodies and waiting to discover what happened. After they died, they were waiting for these these men to die before they could um, before they would do any scientific or or um, any sort of examination of what was going on. So those two narratives in particular were very telling to us. And I wonder, I hope the community understands the importance of narratives, of personal narratives, when it comes to this.
1: One of the things, I mean, so with Henrietta Lacks, her story, one of the most important things, and like you mentioned, Malika, she, this Black woman um, essentially has saved so many people, right? Um, Saving people all over the world and doing all of this with no permission, right? And I think about the way in which we use Black women and we say things like, Black women are going to save us without our permission, right? And and um, our labor is abused and used. And so I, I wanted to bring that into the conversation. And then also for the Tuskegee experiment, um, when we talk about that one, making sure that even the audience members know that there was a cure for syphilis that came about during that time and the researchers decided that that was against what they were you know looking for and and the aims of their um experiment and so they hid that from them you talk about ethical concerns right um and then so i think that's important in that part about us as researchers, when our goal is just to get to our, to, to see how our hypothesis holds up and we're forgetting about the humans that are behind that, forgetting about the autonomy that's necessary. Um, and yes, we have, you know, our ethic, our, um, ethical code now. And, and yes, we know that research has to be approved and, but it's still something for us to consider when we, we shouldn't just think about things in the sense of we're evoking harm in 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 such a overt in your face type of way. Harm is done in very um, less apparent ways every day via research. Um, and so can you talk to us a little bit about um, ethical Uh, concerns for vulnerable populations, and is that, does that still show up today? Are we still using and overusing vulnerable populations within the research that we conduct?
2: Well, really good question. Um, Wish I had an answer. After we did the, the analysis of the data that we did for this manuscript, we figured out which y'all have seen reflective of BCBAs and us not knowing what their demographics are, we largely do not know the demographics of the persons who engage in applied behavior analytic research. So I wish I could answer that question for you, but I have no idea who these people are, where they come from. If we are over-selecting for example, persons that um, are are from areas that are underserved and if we're we're um, engaging in a lot of research on let's say problem behaviors in underserved populations. And if we're engaging in a lot of research on shaping up and, and building new repertoires for more privileged populations, we have no idea if, if that's what's happening, but if that's what's happening, y'all, I'd rather not curse, but when I get really passionate, <laughs> that's, that's not Okay. That's messed up because what we're doing is we're basically saying as a field, it's okay. We don't know who you are. We have an agenda. Yeah, That's the most oppressive way to engage in research I can think of. We don't care who you are. We have this agenda. We have this research question. You are here. Here we go.
0: So yeah. let's say f- for an instance, cause this is where I like, like there's, I struggle with this. So let's say for instance, um, there is like an overrepresentation of vulnerable populations um, and well actually let me let me let's say there's not and let's say that we're getting like you know middle class white people you know cisgender heterosexual you know that and then we're basing the research that we have so let's say we we're, we're we're not using vulnerable populations but now we're basing the research and the interventions and all that and we're applying that to um, to groups where those interventions um, and those data may not be the best way to uh, th- to work with. That's. And if it, does that make? Am I making sense at all? Like it's like there's this balance. Is like, okay. Let's not use vulnerable populations. However, if we're going to take those data and then apply that to people who that's not useful for, it is not uh sen- you know and, and being used in a sensitive way i think there's issue with that too which is where you know we'll get to talking about collaborative research um and you know balancing out power dynamics and things like that so it's beneficial for both but um but i do i think there's that th- that shows up for me
2: no that's that's such a good point and there's a really really nice paper about that called um Um, where they're talking about weird is are the, are the behavioral sciences weird and weird being the acronym Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. So what, what, those authors are talking about is exactly what you're talking about, Aaron It's like, are we, are we using just this subset, this weird subset of the population and saying, we understand about behavior and we understand about psychology. And then are we just applying it to not in the applied sense of applied behavior analysis, but are we just extending that and generalizing that to populations all over the world saying, well, they're all humans, they all behave. So we should be, that, that should be in tune with our findings. And, and that's a big tension right now and a big discussion um, and a good paper to read. That was, that was a, a very, very big piece of the puzzle when I was starting to conceptualize things. So really good question. And, and that weird, what, what is it? The, I'm going to have to look it up.
0: Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I hate like being wrong. So I will. No, I you're fine. That. And, I know, Denisha, you have something to say real fast. Every time I've I've been to a couple ACT boot camps, so acceptance commitment therapy boot camps, and every time I sit in there, or I listen to somebody present. That weird acronym is like what is just like thrown in my face, and I'm like, it is not that simple. You're sitting here telling me to accept, to diffuse all the stuff. I was like, you have no idea what this experience, uh, you know, that I, th- every day, and it's not. There's something that's missing, and I think that that right there. if, You can put words to that i don't know how to yet to articulate that but that is what's missing is that and in mental health too right danisha you've got a background in mental health it's any sort of like uh, theory or uh, methodology that comes from that is very colonial i guess is uh, you know what you're saying
1: yeah i think so one behavior analyst understand that that's actually our biggest limitation that we have done research in that way. Like you said, Malika, that's essentially what it is. We've said, because we are all humans, we all behave, this is what it is. The The answer is the same for every single person. Not recognizing the and behavioral contingencies, not recognizing culture. Um, and so, you know, when we sit down at a table, I, you, so with the publication series, for example, my very first conversation, I'm like, All right, we, if we're going to do this thing, I need to talk about what the future looks like for research for this journal. So I sat down with the editor and I'm like, Are you going to require reporting? You know what I mean? Like, these are things that we have to be discussing. Because, uh, one of the issues, for example, you know, if we have information outside of our field that's telling us that these are the effects of certain strategies so for example one of the things that came up I think last year Yale had put out some information about and we already knew this but black kids being uh suspended and and they had aversive control strategies used to get them the most now we know that is what is happening outside of our field and think about we are the behaviorists What's happening within our field? We have no clue because we are not keeping track of who is who. And we're actually and we're not even keeping track of who the researchers are either. And so that's problematic. But I think it it definitely is the biggest limitation. It is also, you know, one of the things when we had Joe on our show, because Joe was about to go into her mental health program. I was like, one thing that we should know also is that while we we are very behind so are even the fields that we look to for answers. Mental health is still extremely behind. They have a lot to um, counteract and and try to backtrack because they are colonized, you know, Uh, and a lot of the things, even for mental health that you see, that stuff was colonized and then sold back to our communities. And when you think about acting that way, you have to think about acting that way as well, because part of ACT comes from the East. And so when we talk about, And then we know that Kabat-Zinn, once again, he studied up under um, someone from the East and then took that, put that in academia. And then we know him to be the person who taught us mindfulness. Um, And so um, all that goes back, I said all that to say, we are extremely limited. Other fields are extremely limited too. And um, we can make those small adjustments to larger adjustments, but the very first thing that I think we need to make sure to do is that we are keeping track of those data. That we are telling the people who we are if we're writing information about human subjects. I am a you know white person studying this um, this population and what that potential potentially means for the research participants. And then, Malika, uh, you can definitely talk more about this as well um, in terms of how to make sure that the voices of those that we are um, including in our research studies have been included in the work that we are doing. Because vulnerable populations, there are folks that want to be part of research. I have one of my best friends, like, she always is signing up for, she's also a scientist, of course, so she's like, I'm going to sign up for, the COVID trials, I'm like, oh, Lord, oh, goodness. But, you know, like people, you know, there are folks that want to be part of that research, but then how do we treat them um, once they're, they are coming to us and saying, you know, yes, I consent. Um, and what practices are we using to not coerce people to participate? Because that also is a thing too.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good segue into that second, that next section, sort of like power balances and, and, and balances of reinforcers from research. I don't know if that's where you're headed, but
2: (laughs) y'all there's so much to unpack. We could be here for 10 hours and only get like (laughs) a few things, a few things scraped off the top. I think so, so, so let me, let me focus because I will get distracted. That's part of my personality, but if, if we focus on power dynamics, which I think is a very good place to focus, then we have to talk about, social hierarchies and the social environment and and who is afforded certain access to reinforcers and who is not afforded to certain access of reinforcers and how those power dynamics, those unequal power dynamics are maintained through coercion, punishment, counter control, and this cycle that continues over and over again. And science is is just the behavior of scientists, right? So let's just kind of take it down a notch and understand that even radical behaviorism was born out of a western heteronormative eurocentric context so the philosophy of behavior analysis that is radical behaviorism is born out of this same context so if our if our science and if the philosophy that guides our science isn't born out of this western uh, eurocentric context then Then I guess we're talking about something else. It just is what it is. You know what I mean? There's no arguing that. And so why wouldn't everything that matriculates after that in how we understand, how we explain, how we describe behavior, especially social behavior and what is uh, quote unquote appropriate or quote unquote not appropriate or accepted or not accepted in certain cultural societies, um, then why wouldn't that still be cast in a Western frame? Mm -hmm. And and unfortunately, what we get in the context of the West, in the context of capitalist societies like the United States is is this thing called power and this thing called power is diffused in lots of different ways of of being in our society. And one of the biggest ways of being is who who is more dominant than the other. That's, that's essentially what it is. What is more reinforced than the other? What way of being, what way of knowing, what way of seeing? So that's, that's, the, that's the tension that behavior analysts are in, is that our science is part of this Western tr- construct. We are operating in this Western construct. How do we wrestle with it, and how do we, how do we make sure that our science actually is an inclusive science for all humans regardless
0: I think it was more 2003, that defined power is like, um, and Denisha, you, you know, I think you were the first one that taught me that too, that power and privilege are um, the control of reinforcers like access to reinforcers but control of that for other people and if you think about how our society is set up you cannot tell me that there are not people who are not controlling access um to reinforcers for us let me think about i I think it was uh today i got like a notice that um they were shutting down talks of like a stimulus package until after the election or something like that and so if you think about you just controlled access to Reinforcers, but what people need in a time of of uh, of 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 crisis. And so that is power in and of itself is controlling access to other people.
1: I didn't think about this before we got on here. So I might say this in a very mentalistic way. I don't care. But um, um, even think about power in terms of who controls the narrative. So like if you're, you're talking about the stimulus checks what we've seen just the past few days with the person in the white house who was apparently diagnosed with COVID-19 in three days, he is supposed to be healed from, you know, a, this deadly pandemic, this deadly disease that has taken the life of, over 200,000 Americans and to try to control the narrative that it's actually not that big of a deal. Look, I got well in three days. Hey, guess what? We have the best care in the United States. Um, and so, so that is part of it, him being able to control that narrative and then also being able to control the care, like your care is, this is, definitely much different than the care that the average American received throughout this time. And so th- that, those, you know, that speaks to power to me as well. Um, so who gets to, you know, Malika, like you said, who gets to determine what is what for uh, individuals and who gets to then in turn put individuals at risk based on them controlling the narrative to fit their own Um,
2: Sure. And we, and we can take it back to just like basic research and behavior analysis. That's where I find myself when I get a little bit unnerved and, and emotional, I kind of take it a step back and, okay, well, so what is choice in, in basic research? Well, choice is the allocation of responding ac- across uh, different schedules of reinforcement, if we will, uh, different options if we're speaking loosely. Well, okay, cool. We can take that from the lab and we can extend that out into into the real world. And Israel Gold Diamond's work on degrees of freedom is critical to, to read and reread and read again because these degrees of freedom, these these options of choice – Uh, uh, for populations that don't have many options, don't have many levers to press, don't have many, many um, ways out or things to select. Uh, uh, This, this construct of choice becomes highly restricted and, and more mentalistic. And, And so one of the things my husband and I talk about often is like, Behavior analysts are cool. We go to conferences, everybody's good, and they'll talk very behavior analytically and they'll talk very scientifically all the way up into a point and all the way up into a point where we're starting to talk about uh, persons that are being oppressed, persons that don't have these degrees of freedom that you, you have had in your life, which I guess we could call privilege. And then once we get to that point, the conversation gets shut down. I don't know what's going on. That can't be right, and then just a lot of um, a lot of discounting a person's personal experience and their lived experience, mm-hmm. which I, I I find myself curious about as a scientist. Uh, why that? Why that? Why the negative reinforcement takes over the conversation once we get to that
1: point? Hmm. Yeah we we went through um, Gold Diamond's work, the degrees of the freedom. That really is a very important. A piece of work but you mentioned that right like okay so why i'm going to the secondary part that you said like why is it that when we start to discuss oppression that the conversation gets shut down and i think that's one of the biggest points of like what we try to do here for beautiful humans is for people to interrogate that for themselves like you know what is um being reinforced here um and so what are those reasons for yourself this is uncomfortable to you right actually or um to be able to actually uh talk about the veracity of oppression means that there are things that you lose out um you know as a result of that as well and so um that is a good a good point um
0: yeah. Erin, did
1: you have anything you
0: wanted to add? I wrote down a question in my notes and I was like feverishly looking it up because I didn't put it in the show notes. Um, because it, in the context of research, I asked like, you know, we historically do a, most of our research in autism services. And we know that a lot of that involves young kids um, that are unable to give consent themselves, whether it's through age or whether it's through um their the, the capacity to consent to things and so we're supposed to t- pay attention to assent. but what does that actually mean um, what role does that actually play but I think my bigger question is like these we're talking about like people that have no power none whatsoever, whether it's through age, whether it's through ability, whether it's, and then you start adding on other um, identities that, that even um, reduce that, that power even more. And it's like, how do we start to balance the power um, of that? Because the biggest, go back and listen to our ABA reform um, episodes. It's like, we go back to this like scientific explanation. It's like, well, the data says, the data says, and, and you continue to bring up personal narratives and the lived experience. And that is something that I Um, will continue to advocate for and hopefully you know like the direction that I'm going to go with my dissertation all of that highlights the use of qualitative data um, and personal narratives and all of that and and how do you put that voice and amplify that which is something I want to get to in terms of like collaborative research practices um and how does that then become something that, that is meaningful? Because right now it's not. We just look at numbers. So how do you give the numbers like a face and a voice and meaning? I don't know if that makes any sense. but
1: It does make a lot of sense. Man, what a good question. You're killing me
0: tonight. <laughs> Maybe it's just like a rhetorical <laughs> question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no,
2: y'all are really good at asking questions that have like eight parts to them, <laughs> Which means you're, you're really deep thinkers. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to answer the easiest question. <laughs> I'll answer the easiest question, which I, which I think will probably be a seed, seed to think about. So we'll plant that one seed. And I think the easiest question is, um, can we go back to what applied really means? Can we talk about applied and behavior analysis for just a little while and unpack it? And we, we, we don't need to... We don't need to redo Bear, Wolf and Risley, um, sixty eight and eighty seven, and, and Wolf nineteen seventy eight. We don't need to re-read those articles, or excuse me, rewrite those articles. We need to reread them mm-hmm. over and over and over again because the point of applied is that. Applied research is the expressed interest of society, the most pressing issues of society that the that the science gets gets called on in this way to say how do we relieve the suffering of humanity? How do we make sure that uh, we we don't even have to engage in in any sort of. Um, context in which people don't thrive and people can't live optimal lives and what they view as happy, joyful lives? How do we do that? And, And I think that if we focus too much on topographical responses, too much on, okay, so we need to check this mark, we need... Ex black people, ex persons that identify as as, you know, I don't know, I'm just gonna make stuff up now. But if we I hate those check boxes because I personally don't fit in any of those check boxes. Like the nice census person came over and they knocked on my door and they're like, race, like I can tell they're just going through a checklist. They're like, race, and I'm like, How many boxes do you have? I'm like, just one. I'm like all right, so I only get to check one box here. And that's, that's the problem. Like that's that topographical, how do we check this box? And that's the danger with, with applied behavior analytic research is that if you give them a formula, they're just going to want to check a bunch of boxes. And that's not the answer. The answer is who is this person sitting in front of you who's willing to engage in a research opportunity, I guess we could call it. uh, And, and, and what's led them into this door? Why are they here? Why are they motivated to be here? And are our reinforcers aligned? Are you as a participant um, coming through the door with the same negative or positive reinforcers to engage in this relationship as I am? And most likely the answer is no. So if we don't look at the reinforcers between the researcher and the participants coming through the door and we don't understand our lived experience at this intersection, then we're not going to get very far. We're we're going... if we don't analyze that in particular, we're going to go down a road that is is in favor of the researcher and probably not the the participant and then society and humanity at large.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, so I would like for us to kind of go, you know, when when we talk to our audience members, we definitely try to give, you know to frame the issue. And then also give those those steps, right? The next steps. Where do we go from here? Um, and so we know that the steps have been written. They've been written by the communities in which we say we care about. They've been written by communities that some folks actually don't care about. But um, you know. Can you talk to us a little bit about what people have suggested in the past, what the Fawcett recommendations were, and then can you talk to us about community-based um, action research? Sure. So, so
2: steps for, for uh, behavior analysts that are engaged in applied behavior analytic research, is that what you're talking about, mm-hmm. Nisha? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the steps are to read those seminal articles and and digest them appropriately and have those conversations with whoever's in charge of the research project, because that's another level of power dynamics that needs to be discussed. Um, especially graduate students, they're in a vulnerable position, and they're in a position where they are trying to achieve a, um, a life goal in many instances, and they are trying to achieve... A degree, and there's a person running a project, and they have to figure out where they fit into that project because that's just what's running, and that's what our IRB has approved, and on and on. So, um, I wish I had a bunch of actionable steps, but the tension with my co authors and I, especially with this article, is that in a field that demands actionable steps, we're just really genuinely asking you to to question oppressive structures, to look out for persons that have historically been marginalized and are continuing to be marginalized and to dismantle systems that continue that oppression. And that cannot be done in topographical. I made a checklist. I asked this. I, I did this cultural diversity training. I have a certificate. That's, that's not it. I read, I read how to be an anti-racist. Like, I'll, I will clap you and applaud you, but that is not going to dismantle these systems and it's not going to allow for, for a, a more equitable equitable world moving forward. It's just going to pat you on the back and give you something to post on social media, sadly.
1: Um, Erin, did you have anything you wanted to add?
0: No, I'm just, I, you know, it was really interesting what you just said about graduate students because I'm in a doctoral program, too, and I actually feel very grateful, um, you know, because I've suggested a lot of things. I'm in, like, the dissertation prep course right now, and I'm going to start that in January, um, but I've suggested some really off-the-wall things, and um, and my chair has just, like, gone and rolled with the punches. has just been like, well, I know this person. I can connect you with them. Like, let's set up a meeting and see where we can go. Um, and it does. It involves a lot of like personal narrative, um, collaborative. When you said um, knowing that person when they come in the door, you know, from like, with, like, why, why did you sign up to do this? I think that understanding that, and I think we miss that with like group uh, group designs because there's so many, you know, like what, and not that group designs can't be helpful, but I think it's just you know, it's it's understanding like. Why are you here? Um, What do you hope to get out of this? How can I help you achieve that? And I think our adherence to that rigid methodology that we have in these interventions and that IRB, like this is what's been approved and I can't um, stray from that at all, is really it kind of shoots us in the foot when it comes to balancing out those reinforcers that you're talking about. Um, Because if I have to go through a whole other IRB approval to change any sort of intervention, or you know, it's like how... Um, I guess that kind of comes into building that into the to the proposal uh, you know within a certain kind of uh, set of guidelines or something uh, but um, I just I I, to, I felt very I'm really hopeful I'm really excited about like the proposal that I have that's coming up I'm actually gonna like send you an email after this because like yes. <laughs> I have some ideas uh, but um, but uh, I, I don't know I think you're you, Speaking to all of the graduate professors out there, you know, I think it is important to to consider the power dynamics that are within that, too. It's not just the researcher participant, but it's the researcher student, you know, or the the professor student, um, you know, kind of dynamic as well.
2: And I think I think that speaks so much to how important it is to have a circle of people that are genuinely growing in that same direction and social justice work and including participants in, and taking notes of oppression and looking at marginalized populations, that's not for the faint of heart. Dr. Lai and I often have conversations and we've cried so much and we've, we've labored so much and we're so tired some days. And so, so if you have that group of folks that really, really, really gets it, do not let them go and make sure you keep them. And we need to continue expanding our circles to make sure not that we're being exclusive necessarily, but, but that the people that really get it, like we need to keep rowing together in this, in this, this ocean because the waters get choppy, man, and days get, days get rough.
1: I think that that is so key there. Aaron and I talk about that um, behind the scenes a lot in terms of the, the village and the community that, is being built. Um, One of the best things that has come out of this podcast is realizing that the village is a little bit bigger than we initially you know, thought of. And so being able to connect to folks who have those same values, who connect to the spirit of behavior analysis and behavior science, you know. (laughs) Um, And then at times that does feel, even though it feels bigger than we thought, it still feels isolating at times too. Um, Not that, you know, there's an attempt to keep people out, but that there is an attempt to make sure that we keep the good fight and keep ourselves centered in what's right, um, especially, you know, human relationships are really complicated and it's really easy and not to, we're, we all do harm, but it, it can be really easy to accept harm um, in, inside of your village. And so it does feel good when you're able to find folks um, that you can do this type of work with. Um, yeah. yeah
0: real fast i think it like the, the part that you said about it being exhausted i think there's such a lack of acknowledgement for that and i know that i've felt it over the past couple of months and denisha you know we've talked about that it's just like this um, the gratitude that people express and the way they show that is is Offering opportunities and often unpaid opportunities and things like that. And what people don't realize is that um, being a part of a, you know, a historically marginalized group and then digging into that work that you're that you're doing, it's so painful. And that is part of the exhaustion that comes from that Um You know, Denise and I actually just wrote different chapters, but for the same book. And I I emailed the editors and I'm like, look, I'm going to give you a little perspective. Like, this is exhausting reading about the history of my ancestors in the LGBT community and how um, my identity has been erased and excluded. It's exhausting. It's painful. Um, I'm going to need a couple extra days. And they were so generous and grateful. And it's just but I think, too, to know it's okay to ask for that um, if they really value your work uh, that, that, that will be acknowledged and and honored too. And so I think there's, um, to know that that network that you have, like Denisha and I, it's like when, (laughs) when, when, um, you know, it's when one needs to pick up the slack, the others uh, needs to, to rest and to, to whether it's grieving or self-care or whatever that is. And that I would imagine is no different in this sort of work in terms of research. And, um, you know, so it's, for those of you listening, uh, the, If you're wondering why you haven't gotten some sort of like deadline met or something like that, maybe take that perspective because that that might be the case. Somebody's really tired and hurting, you know.
1: So, Malaika, in your paper, you talk about collaborative research practices. What are the aims of collaborative research practices and how does this move in the opposite direction of colonial powers? So how does this prevent exploitation, amplify voices and focus on inclusion.
2: Sure. So, so this goes back to Fawcett's work in 1991, where he he introduced this colonial uh, relationship, and he talked about the colonial relationship being something that behavior analysts should avoid, because what that colonial relationship does is it establishes the researcher as the dominant power. Um, um, uh, Uh, The dominant power as far as the research engagement is concerned and the subject as the person that is the silent subservient target of research. Those are his words, the silent subservient target of research which is really compelling because what that does is that automatically alludes to, no, it doesn't allude to, it automatically pinpoints the fact that we have this dichotomy of power and the, the all-knowing researcher is the one who's in charge of, of the research endeavor and making those types of decisions. And then the the subject is one that is just there to to be researched, unfortunately. So what at that point in the article, it's really nice because what Fawcett does is he says, okay, now I'm not going to use the word subject in the more anymore. I'm going to use the word participant. And he shifts from subject to participant in the manuscript in real time. And he makes that distinction because if we're going to engage in participatory research, then Just by virtue of calling it participatory research and by saying that this person is participating in this engagement, that automatically amplifies a voice, that automatically, that automatically, uh, well, not automatically necessarily, but that puts us in a better position to engage in a dialogue, engage in a dialogue that's inclusive, engage in a dialogue in which there's beneficence, like the Belmont Report talks about. Why are you engaging in this research? And then how can you benefit Beneficence in the Belmont Report genuinely means that the person, by by their involvement in the research, benefits. And then humanity benefits, because we've learned something that benefits more than just us. It benefits us as a collective. So, so that, is, that is the axis in which, I think, in 1991, the field did not shift with with Fawcett. And honestly, the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, that entire special section in 1991 deserves to be read. That's where Schwartz and Bayer talked about social validity and invalidity again. So that entire um, chunk of literature really for applied behavior analysts needs to be read, reread, digested, talked about amongst their collectives and and put into action. So if really behavior analysts are really going to like nail me down and say actionable steps, I'm going to say go back to literature and do what they said. Cause I told you the first time and now I feel like the mom that I am. Cause I said it before. <laughs> I said I it before. It. Yeah.
0: Don't like, make me repeat myself. They mm-hmm. said it again. We don't have to
2: rewrite this.
0: Like, <laughs> Don't repeat your SD more than once. Okay. <laughs> I think that that's such an issue though. Is like, you know, we, we hang our hats on like the, the seminal, articles right and i think there are so many that it's like we've we've cherry-picked certain ones that uphold these certain practices right and we kind of let these other ones like slide into the radar and and i'm thinking you know teaching Um, what we're teaching students coming in it's like we're going to go read this we're going to go read this and so um, I'm speaking right now currently I'm going to speak to my future ethics class that is going to listen to this class starts on Monday they will be we'll do on the week where we talk about research we always talk about um, I have them watch uh, we talk about Tuskegee we'll talk about all of those things and power and we talk about um, what actually is consent um, you know and if we're doing enough and so I'm they're going to hear this because I'm going to require them to listen to it, whether, <laughs> um, you know, and and so I just think that I'm trying to if they get frustrated because I'm pulling out all of these old articles or these old references, it's because they're not going to hear that anywhere else. They really aren't. Everybody's going to hear Bear Wolf and Risley. Um, they'll hear these other these other things. Um, but the ones that you just referenced, gold diamonds, you know, freedom, those kind of things. And and then we cherry pick too what we want to take from Skinner. You know, he said a lot of things, but we're just going to go back to these, you know, th- th- we're just going to pick, you know, confirmation bias. I want to, I want to think this, so I'm just going to pay attention to this. I'm going to ignore all the other stuff.
1: What? It's so frustrating. <laughs> it's so frustrating. Like
2: even, even Sidman's um, coercion and its fallout, like yeah. why haven't more behavior analysts read coercion and its fallout from cover to cover, beginning to end? Yeah. Um, I get frustrated sometimes when I have to repeat myself, but I imagine that Sidman and Skinner would be tired too. Um, And Steve also should be tired. I haven't had the opportunity to
1: meet him. I would love to. Um, They must be tired. Maybe not.
0: I just want to point out. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Denisha.
1: (laughs) I was trying to remember the author. I think it's Joseph Morrow who discussed how our behavior science was going to get bought and sold to the highest bidder. And if you're thinking about capitalism and, oh, you know, we talked about this before on a few shows, Aaron, and me just like kind of, how did we get here? How did we get to autism? What was the function behind that? Um, like capitalism has to be brought into that into that conversation. Um, but yeah, I think they would be tired because if they envisioned that we would get swept up with the world, no, because that's not... <laughs> The type of work that they were um, putting out, and you know, talking about. First of all, hi Aaron's class, hello y'all. Um, <laughs> <are listening>. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was I, I was literally having that conversation with myself that the um, that our our degree programs don't cover this type of information unless you go to you know um, schools that are like you and our your school malaika um, but it's autism we're preparing our students to be to know all of the the seminal pieces on autism work um, but then the the works of you know gold diamond get buried up under it and we don't understand how our science actually we say our science is applicable to everything but we don't understand what that even means um, to us on a day-to-day basis what that means in terms of e- evoking behaviors that are actually for the good of all human beings, for the good of all living beings, right? Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, what were you going to mm-hmm. say, Erin? I was just going to say,
0: it, I think you, there's been this theme that we've been talking about lately and it's that regardless of whatever current climate our society is in right now and where there's there's this focus and orientation on social justice and equity, um, People have been doing this work for decades, for centuries, um, and it is not something new that we've invented. And I just want to point out, I really appreciate how you have, whether it's in this conversation, the paper and any presentation that I've seen you talk about, um, you're honoring that. And you're saying that these people have been saying this and, it, you know, they're going to be tired because, you know, if they were here to see that. But it's just um, this is no different. And so this is just another example of how we can, you know, reinforce people uh, to to understand that.
2: it's, it's difficult for behavior analysts because yes some good work has been done in, in behavior analysis but there's so much good work that needs to be looked at outside of behavior analysis when we're talking about these big complicated constructs especially like the commodification of behavior data the exchange of behavior data for money um, and that can happen in clinical settings with children with autism that can happen with with me publishing whatever I publish and I get a grant or somebody gets me a bunch of money to talk about my research, that we live in a capitalist society, so the commodification of behavior data cannot be ignored, and and so I borrow a lot of work, and I spend a lot of time digesting other fields, sociology, anthropology in particular, and trying to make that, and put it in the behavioral construct so that I can understand it as a behavior analyst, and then convey it to our family as behavior analysts, and that is, that is part of the labor too, that it's exhausting, and um right now I am focused on, on if your if your listeners are interested I am focused on reading just works by black women right now I am I am in a homogenous state of being right now. So the works of, of Isabel Wilkerson, um, I'm reading cast right now, Octavia Butler, um, parable of the sower and parable of the talents and Ruha Benjamin's work, people, science and race after technology. And Layali maparayan the womanist idea, like these are the constructs that I'm looking at. So they're so much bigger than behavior analysis. So, I can't just begin to say like, yeah, I figured this all out on my own and I'm doing great. It's just me and me and my 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 uh, dot committee that 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 came up across all these answers. It's just not true. It's just not true. Um, and if you don't lim- listen to the voices of black women, uh, especially in the United States and especially the, the things that they've been saying for so, so long, uh, I, I think you're, you're, you're going to shortchange yourself on a journey that is, is important, critical, rather.
1: Yes. Um, so this has been a wonderful show, as we uh, knew that it would be. Um, to take us out, we want to make sure that we give our listeners some homework. Um, hopefully the homework revealed itself throughout the show (laughs) a lot to take with this one Um, if you're wondering where to start at least start with reading the article that we're discussing today so um, we will have it in the show notes for you so go read Dr. Malaika's work Um, and yeah is there anything that you would like to say before we take this show on out? No No. thank y'all for having me it's been so much fun. Yes, we would love to have you back. Um, yeah. So, yeah, let's continue this conversation online. You can follow us on Facebook at Beautiful Humans Cast or Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change. Um, share your thoughts on this episode. Malika, do you have any social media accounts that you would like for people to follow or uh, yeah to- instagram malika.pritchett and uh,
2: twitter malika pritchett first name last name that's it
0: that's easy enough i like it yeah. <laughs> keep it simple
1: <laughs> that's me all right well thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us
0: we'll see you next time
1: It's Denisha. And Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So Pretty Easy Podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck
1: and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com
0: today.